All right, let us pray. Dear Father God, we praise you and we thank you for bringing us all together this morning. Lord, we, uh, we lift up those who are not here with us this morning. Lord, as we look into a time where the world was changing, where art was changing, where the church was changing, Lord, let us learn from it. Let us from, learn from all of the glories and mistakes of those who came before us. Lord, Lord shape our uh, hearts and minds today. In Christ's name, amen. I'm going to start today the prayer that's in our prayer book. It's actually the the second prayer in in the colics and occasional prayers. <laughs> it's by William Laud, who was an Archbishop of Canterbury at the tail end of the Reformation. Uh, and he prays gracious father we pray for your holy catholic church fill it with all truth and all truth with all peace where it is corrupt purify it where it is an error direct it where in anything it is amiss reform it where it is right, strengthen it. Where it is in want, provide for it. Where it is divided, reunite it. For the sake of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. Amen. Uh, so today we'll be covering... Uh, two big movements that were happening in the world and in the church from, from the 14th to the 17th century, roughly. Uh, those are the Renaissance and the Reformation. So today... I get to talk about Leonardo, Donatello, Raphael, and Michelangelo. <laughs> Which, as a kid of the 80s and 90s, would have been my dream. I'm, I'm, unfortunately, I'm not talking about reptiles. <laughs> the art world was was changing dramatically. If you remember some of the artwork we've seen over the past two or three sessions, it's been beautiful, but a few characteristics you'll notice about it. It's very flat. You know, there are these figures, most of the time, they're, they're staring straight forward. If they're not, they're sideways. Or whatnot. Remember the uh, St. Francis picture last week where he's preaching to the birds. That's, uh, and, you know, he's, he's kind of sideways. And he's on the flat surface. There's not really any depth to his work. That begins to change. It begins to change very, very gradually. Now, when, when we talk about the Renaissance, we think of one big movement 
uh, typically today. It was really two separate but interlinked movements. There was a northern renaissance, there was a southern renaissance. Southern, you're thinking uh, Italy, Spain. Northern, you're thinking the German regions. Hubert and Jan van Eck uh, were, were brothers. They lived from 1370 to 1426 and 1390 to 1441, uh, respectively. Uh, so there was almost a 20-year gap between these brothers, but they painted together. This is uh, the Ghent altarpiece. Altarpieces were a huge uh, focus of art during this period of time. And while, while the top uh, images, including uh, uh, Christ and Majesty, have, have a bit of continuity with what we've seen during the uh, Middle Ages, uh, though with a, a bit more detail, we're getting into uh, study of what humans actually look like again. <laughs> uh, the bottom does something radically different. Now, this is an image from uh, uh, generally from Revelation. It is, uh, it is called the Adoration of the Mystic Lamb. And what do you see? You see death. You see something used, and this has just been a discovery that sort of merges art and, uh, and science, uh, and it's something artists still use today, vanishing point perspective. Everything goes back, ultimately, to an invisible line on the horizon. So everything points in sort of a triangle towards that point on the horizon, and this gives the illusion of death. And nothing that has been done in art has, has been able to replicate that kind of depth accurately before. You'll see things at angles, but they'll be at weird angles, angles that don't correspond to each other. And so it's really during this time of the early Renaissance where this is discovered and it revolutionizes art uh, uh, just, just a note, uh, this picture, if you're wondering who the four groups are, on the upper left uh, are male martyrs, uh, then down uh, counterclockwise from that are the um, uh, pagan philosophers and Old Testament prophets. <laughs> Uh, and then on the, uh, on the lower right are the saints, and on the upper right are the female martyrs. Uh, notice for a scene set uh, in the revelation scenario, more or less, uh, with uh, the lamb obviously representing Jesus. This is not some you know, bright and cloudy scene. This is 
uh, this is, you know, very green, very, uh, uh, very garden-like, but also with the city and everything. It's very, uh, uh, it's very atypical from how we picture those scenes today. Jacob, why do the uh, male martyrs have pointy bishop's hats? I don't... Unless they really were bishops. Yeah. Um, I guess the guys in the back don't. So. Right. I. Uh, I don't know, except for maybe representing the the first centuries of the church, where a lot of the uh, bishops like Polycarp, uh, uh, Irenaeus, all all of those. Uh, a lot of bishops from that period were were martyred. So, um, but yeah, that's that's a good question, and I, I don't know exactly why he why they decided to to do that because uh, obviously on the lower right, some of them have some of those have bishops' hats mm-hmm. as well. Another famous altarpiece during this time uh, was by Matthias Grunwald. Grunwald lived from 1470 to 1528. This was uh, this was from a monastery, the monastery of Saint Anthony in Eisenheim, which was German. Now it's part of France, um, and and. Uh, that monastery um, focused on hospital work. And so Christ on the cross has, uh, he, he seems to have a skin ailment. Uh, and uh, uh, with, with the thorns and everything. And, and this was done to... Uh, to sort of symbolize that, that uh, for the people who were hospitalized, and of course the plague was a huge ongoing thing at this point, that Jesus uh, uh, in his suffering identified with the suffering of the people that were being treated in, this hos- in the hospitals that uh, these monastics were working in. And then we have the Southern Renaissance. Uh, so, uh, uh, so the Southern Renaissance is the one we are most familiar with today. Uh, uh, Donatello and Fra Angelico were some of the early artists. They were working. Donatello uh, lived 1386 to 1466. Fra Angelico. Uh, uh, lived 1395 to 1455. And, and you notice, uh, uh, so David uh, uh, Donatello uh, sculpted many, uh, he was primarily a sculptor. He did things like, it's David, sorry, I have to censor this a little bit. For, uh, church purposes, I suppose. Um, 
And, uh, and so he's trying to recapture uh, the human form. The sculpture has not been a huge thing throughout the Middle Ages, and it's making a comeback. Now, notice a difference between this bronze sculpture of David that Donatello does and, and the more famous uh, sculpture of David that Michelangelo does uh, a few decades later. For Angelico, we still see a Madonna that, that looks very typical, even typical colors for a Madonna, a virgin and child. And yet, we do see this, uh, these angles, this vanishing point perspective starting to give uh, that sense of depth. And we see a baby Jesus who actually looks like a baby. During the Middle Ages, especially in the East, you see Jesus, uh, baby Jesus with elongated fingers and, and features that honestly looked more adult. And that was done in that period of time to distinguish him from being just another baby. But, of course, the real breakthroughs in painting start to come through with, with artists like Leonardo. Leonardo could seemingly do everything. He was a, a scientist, an engineer, and he was a painter. Uh, again, you see the vanishing point perspective in this. Uh, of course, this is one of his most famous works, The Last Supper. But uh, the tragic thing about this painting is that it is falling apart. Uh, the, uh, the artists of the Renaissance were very experimental. And one of uh, Leonardo's experiments did not work. <laughs> Uh, his, some of his paint formulations. <laughs> this has been restored time and time again. The latest restoration, we've lost a lot of detail uh, from overpainting that has been done uh, over the centuries. Uh, and yet we have it back to more of its original coloring. People are torn about this. Uh, it's like, do, do we want to try to make it look as much like we think the original looked as possible? Uh, so keeping the details added in, or do we want to strip it down to Leonardo's original work as much as possible uh, and just sort of fill in the colors that he used? That is what has been done this past round, which was done about 30 years ago. And so this is The Last Supper as we have it. Now, all of these uh, apostles are actually identifiable. Uh, I'm not going to go through all of them because I don't know all of them. But obviously, right here beside Jesus, that is John. Uh, don't listen to 
uh, Dan Brown or anyone else that's not Mary Magdalene, uh, younger men were painted in a very feminine way during the Renaissance. Uh, uh, the lowest person on the table, this one uh, uh, right beside John, but not the one speaking to him. Of course, the one speaking to him is Peter. Uh, the one leaning down, the lowest one on the table, is Judas. <coughs> and finally, and uh, oh, not finally. So, of course, uh, there was Michelangelo. Uh, this is his Pieta. Uh, people were very vexed by how young Mary looked uh, as, as Michelangelo sculpted her. Uh, and yet everyone was so impressed by, uh, by the figure of the dead Jesus, uh, the, the way the, the folds of his body, how his flesh is captured in marble. And it's just mind-blowing that you can, uh, you can see the form of his body underneath, uh, almost. The muscles, the, the bones, that, uh, the realism had never really been matched before. And this is what this distinguishes the Southern Renaissance. The Southern Renaissance, as opposed to the Northern Renaissance, the Northern Renaissance did many great things, and I love it. Uh, but the Southern Renaissance, they really focused on, on not just how the body looks from the outside, but how the body works from the inside, because they figured if you can understand how the body is actually working, how these muscles are working, how these bones are working, uh, then you can more... Uh, you can better rep replicate that life in the artwork. And I think the Pieta really shows this to be true, and David shows this to be true. Um, Michelangelo used a lot of models. He also uh, studied cadavers. <laughs> and, and, and so that, that gave a life to his sculpture that uh, has hardly ever been replicated, I think. Finally, this is the only one that I'm not using a, uh, I guess, religious-inspired image coming on the back of, uh, of Michelangelo. Uh, the last of the really greats is Raphael. And this one... His sense of space, again, he's using that vanishing point perspective, and he's bringing it out, in, uh, to, out to the wall that this is painted on. So much so that if you're looking straight at it uh, on, the, on that wall, it's hard to tell where the details of the wall end and where the details of the painting begin. And here's Raphael looking at us. <laughs> he painted himself. This is the, the school of Athens. Oh. 
Uh, and, and so you're seeing all the great philosophers here. And uh, he, he gives himself a little cameo shot, breaking the fourth wall down here. Meanwhile, in Germany, something is happening. And this is definitely uh, during the lifetimes of Michelangelo and Raphael, but a world away from them in many ways. There was an artist named Lucas Cranach. Lucas Cranach the Elder, we call him now, because uh, he had a son named Lucas Cranach the Younger. Cranach the Younger painted this portrait of his father. Lucas Cranach the Elder painted this uh, portrait of Martin Luther. Cranach was hugely important to the work of Martin Luther. First of all, Cranach, uh, besides being a court artist, was also a printmaker. He had a Gutenberg printing press. And, and you know, we have, we have seen the illuminated manuscripts of the Middle Ages and how beautiful those were, but those were made by hand by monks, and they were all in Latin. And so uh, as, as the Reformation begins, as, as Martin Luther rages against the abuses that are occurring within the Catholic Church, such as the selling of indulgences, that we, that we heard sort of starting to happen uh, through miracle plays and, and all sorts of other means to, to play on people's emotions and extort them for money. Uh, Martin, Martin Luther develops a friend in Lucas Cranach. Now, <coughs> Cranach uh, not only uh, has the printing press on which the original German New Testaments are printed, he funds that printing and does the original woodcut illustrations for it. And so in many ways, the, uh, the Reformation might not have happened, or at least would have looked very differently had it not been for Lucas Cranach. Cranach was friends with Luther for, their, for the entirety of their lives together. When, when the whole Bible was eventually finished, Cranach did some amazing artwork for it. Uh, this, this is obviously the, uh, the creation of the world. You've got Eden here in the middle. You've got the sun, moon, and stars around it. And here is, of course, the, uh, uh, the, the taking of Elijah 
up into heaven with the chariot of fire. Uh, here is Elisha uh, looking on, and you know, bold colors uh, are used on on these um, on these engravings are printed, and it's an absolutely gorgeous volume. And Cronach, uh, again, was friends with Luther throughout their lives together. This is a painting that Cronach, the, the elder, started, and that Cronach, the younger, finished after after his death, and, and so you've got lots of symbolism going on here. You have, uh, you have Jesus, uh, obviously dead on the cross. He's already been stabbed. Once the Reformation happens, it's very easy to tell who was uh, in the uh, Catholic camp and who is in the Lutheran camp, uh, because uh, in the cat, uh, the, the Reformed, well, the Lutherans, uh, will always paint Jesus as dead on the cross, not as still alive or suffering on the cross, because they wanted to emphasize the idea that, that this is finished, that we are not, as, as some Catholic framework would, uh, would have it that we are not re-sacrificing in some sense uh, Jesus when, when, we, uh, when we take the Eucharist. We are, you know, that, that work is, is done. And so uh, obviously this is Jesus as well crushing, uh, crushing the devil. We also have John the Baptist, as always, pointing to Jesus. Uh, and we have Martin Luther with the Bible and his old friend Lucas Cronach uh, down here. And the, and the blood of Christ is being shed directly on them. There's a lot more going on in the background of this. Now, uh, this, this is obviously very worshipful art, and much of what Cronach did was very worshipful. Not everyone during this time period was comfortable with art and worship. Obviously, there had been uh, there had been misuse of relics and misuse of visual art, misuse of, of icons and such. This had actually already caused a stir a few centuries earlier. Uh, in, the, in the eighth century, uh, and, and the emperor, the Byzantine emperor at that point in time, uh, actually called for the end of the use of icons, and many icons were destroyed. Uh, 
this, uh, this all led up to a, an ecumenical council being called. These, uh, and this was the second council of Nicaea. Of course, we know the first council of Nicaea, that is where something uh, really big happened establishing, uh, establishing who, who Christ is in our view and we recite the creed that came from that every Sunday. The second council of Nicaea is considered less important. As Anglicans, we are not bound to the second council of Nicaea. We, we primarily hold to the first four ecumenical councils. The, uh, the last three are optional. <laughs> um, but but the, uh, the second council of Nicaea, which is the seventh ecumenical council, uh, discussed the veneration of icons. Uh, and what wound up uh, ending, winning the day is that, no, of course, they are not supposed to be worshipped. Uh, however, John of Damascus, who is uh, considered a saint, now, he was a great theologian, and he has a little uh, set of writings published in a book called Three, Treaties on the, Three Treatises on the Divine Images. And he says, veneration, bowing down, is a symbol of submission and honor, and we know the different forms of this. The first is as a form of worship, which we offer to God alone, by nature worthy of veneration. Then there is the veneration offered on account of God, who is naturally venerated to his friends and servants. So, uh, so this distinguishes between veneration, uh, which, uh, which we might give to God, as, as opposed to basically honoring those who have served God well. He also distinguished that first form of veneration as adoration, as, as love, as an act of worship, and that is only for God. And, and he said, regarding the use of art and the icons, therefore I am emboldened to depict the invisible God, not as invisible, but as he became visible for our sake by participation in the flesh and blood. I do not depict the invisible divinity, but I depict God made visible in the flesh. This is an argument that is heard time and time again. It's heard then and then as the Reformation comes about, we hear it again in the West that because Jesus is the word made flesh, that he is God incarnate, what m would have probably been a violation of the second commandment, the normal accusation, a violation of the second commandment before Jesus came to earth is now no longer such because Jesus himself has made God known to us. 
Thomas Aquinas uh, writing on images in the 1200s, in the 13th century, uh, gave further instruction that images serve three purposes. The first is instruction. As we've talked about through all the Middle Ages stuff, it was, uh, especially with stained glass windows and, uh, and various icons, things like that, it gave people who were illiterate, or at least were not hearing the Bible in their own languages, they had a visual language to, res- to, uh, to be instructed by in the doctrines of the church and the Bible. Uh, second is recollection, so aid in memory. And third was devotion, uh, so to aid us in our worship of God. Now, reacting to uh, uh, a lot of this, there, were, there was already some unrest happening in the pre-Reformation church in Europe. Uh, John Wycliffe saw the abuses going on. John Wycliffe was an English scholar and priest in the 1300s. So uh, the middle part of the 14th century, really. And he was, in many ways, a proto-reformer. He was the first person to translate the Bible into English, even though he translated from Latin. He also had a wildly different view of the substance of the Eucharist than, than the Catholic Church did. He did not believe in transubstantiation. Uh, and so he, he originally had a, um, a very moderating view of images. He said, it is clear that sacred images can serve good or evil. They are good when used for exciting, facilitating, and inflaming the minds of the faithful so that they worship God more devotedly. And evil, when, they, when the use of images stray from the truth of faith so that the image is venerated uh, with either what, uh, what he called latria, the worship paid to God, or dulia, the... Uh, veneration given to saints, or when they produce delight in their beauty and richness, or produce emotions inappropriate to the circumstances. His followers, the Lollards, who, who continued to, they were itinerant preachers, and they went all throughout England, and they continued all the way into the Reformation and very naturally became part of the Reformation movements in England. They regarded the veneration of any image as idolatry. But Luther and Luther took a very different approach than the Lollards. And we, we will start seeing two factions developing very quickly. In 1522, when Luther was in hiding, completing his translation of the New Testament, 
One of his old professors, Andreas Karlstadt, uh, decided there in Wittenberg, where Luther had been teaching, and where he had gotten his doctorate from Karlstadt, <laughs> uh, Karlstadt decided he's going to take Luther's ideas and run with it, and become, and he becomes more extreme than Luther in his rejection of Catholic doctrines, and so, and so he's he has the city government ban, uh, ban images. Uh, the churches are stripped of their artwork. It is destroyed, and it becomes a real mess. But Luther comes back, obviously. He finishes his New Testament, time to come back to town, sees what's going on, and puts a stop to it. Um, in 1522, Luther, he's very influential at this point. He annuls the iconoclastic ordinances and suspends the removal of images enacted by Karlstad in his absence. And he mounts an all-out attack on him. Luther was a, a, a man of words. Um, <laughs> he says about both uh, Andreas Karlstad and the Pope, very nice, I'm sure, for Karlstad to be lumped together with the Pope. <laughs> he says, they both destroy Christian freedom, and they are both anti-Christian. But the Pope does it through commandments, Dr. Karlstad through prohibitions. He continues with this for a long, long time. Uh, in a sermon preached, uh, in March 1522, and printed a year later, he, he lays out his reasoning. His central focus is the freedom of the Christian. He gives biblical examples of the use of images, some of which we've already visited in our first couple of sessions, uh, such as uh, the uh, uh, he mentions... Uh, Moses and the bronze serpent. Uh, he also mentions the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. And he lays out three principles. To destroy images as an act of good works uh, is its own form of works righteousness. Two, to place work, works of art in churches with the intention of earning merit with God was inconsistent with the doctrine of justification by faith. And three, there is nothing wrong with images themselves. Only if they are abused uh, uh, are, uh, are, they, are they wrong. So as long as they're not leading to superstition or encouraging a false spirituality of works, you know, stare at this image for so long and you will uh, be relieved of such and such time in purgatory. As long as they're not being used transactionally with God, then, then they're helpful. So his approach tended to be uh, in places where, where images were being used idolatrously. In those places, they need to step back from the use of images 
for a time or be instructed how, how to use images rightly and not wrongly. But other reformers did not hold to this. We have, we have primarily John Calvin, uh, Huldrych Zwingli, uh, and of course the radical reformers like Karlstedt, all basically together saying that, that images, largely due to the uh, interaction they've, they've had with uh, people abusing the images, they say they need to go. And so all throughout the reformed areas of Europe, artwork is removed from churches, uh, stained glass windows are destroyed, and, and generally this, this dichotomy develops. Artwork still exists, and in this new post, uh, post-Reformation Renaissance, uh, you really see the difference between the Catholic Church, the Lutheran Church, and the Reformed Church. In, in the Renaissance artwork that comes from the Reformed Church, suddenly there is uh, pretty much no depiction of religious imagery. We suddenly see a lot of depiction of agrarian settings, of the natural world, uh, and, and anything that can still point ultimately to God, but is no longer representative of explicit divine images. And this, you know, everything changes the course of art a bit. And so to its credit, uh, this, this gives way to many of the great landscape painters that we will see in subsequent centuries. Calvin rejected, uh, he was aware of Nicaea, uh, second Nicaea, uh, though he was not aware of John of Damascus' argument. He knew about the the eventual conclusion of Nicaea II and rejected it. Uh, this, uh, and in, uh, in England, as the Reformation comes there, both of these parties, the sort of Lutheran party and the uh, Reform party, are both rep represented in the Reformation Church of England. Of course, the via media, the middle way that is typically seen uh, in the Anglicanism between uh, uh, Calvinism and Lutheranism, uh, that middle way, there, there, is, there is a bit of tension there over imagery. And, uh, and you see it, you see it. I remember on my visit to, to England, there are, uh, there are churches with you know, very, very large 
Gothic style windows that, you know, uh, that would have originally contained stained glass. But they're clear. And they're clear going back to this Reformation period where, where much of the artwork within the churches was destroyed. Uh, and, and churches built after the Reformation. Obviously, you know, we've seen the Roman style. We have seen the Gothic style. And for the lower church Anglicans and for the Reformed, uh, we get a drastically different look in church buildings from that point onward. While the high church Anglicans and uh, many Lutherans and obviously Catholics still keep a very different design. But this is a drawing uh, of it's about 50 years old, of chapel over at Southern Seminary. And it is a perfect uh, depiction of a post-Reformation low church Protestant sanctuary. It's beautiful, and yet it is very plain. There is no representational imagery. There is not even a cross in there. You will not see a cross in there or in Southern smaller chapel. Uh, uh, the, uh, in the center is, is not a communion table, uh, but, but is a pulpit. Uh, is, uh, uh, church, churches develop that style to elevate the the preaching of the word as the central element of the service rather than the celebration of the Eucharist being the center of the service. Many, th uh, many things begin to change uh, with, with uh, not just the look of building, but you know, that represents an underlying change of the way Christians are thinking about themselves and thinking about the things that we have believed or practiced. And lastly, uh, of course, Henry VIII had, had some uh, early sway as well. In the monasteries in, the, in England, he destroyed the monasteries. He dissolved the monasteries and took their art and riches and either sold or destroyed it per, for profit. And so much of the artwork that we might have had in those monasteries was, uh, was eventually sold or lost. So, and that is our time. So, any questions? So, so yeah, um, it's interesting uh, this this being painted of, of obviously uh, ancient Greece, uh, the ancient Greeks did paint their uh, did paint their statues and everything. By the time of the Reformation, they you know all that was left was what we typically know today, which is the uh, the plain sculptures 
without the paint. The paint gradually wore off, and then the you know thousand years in between. Well, more than a thousand years in between when those sculptures originally existed and when Raphael was painting this, basically he didn't know better. He didn't, he didn't know that the, uh, the sculptures originally would have had painting, would have had paint on them. Uh, and so when the other Renaissance artists, when the sculptors like Michelangelo uh, do their uh, work, then they don't end up painting their sculptures either. All right. Uh, thanks, and we'll see you next week where we will, I think, get into Impressionism.